0: That's English as she should be spoken. But, uh, and also, uh, I, I do like to get people to think about things. And I think out loud. That's the most dangerous thing. I, I write things down, but then I, I get a bit carried away. So I am just thinking out loud. And I hope that this will be beneficial and helpful to you. Let me just say, first of all, what courage actually is. It's not the absence of fear. If uh, you go out and you run into a midst of bullets because you don't know that bullets will kill you, that's not courage, that's stupidity. Courage is when you are very, very afraid, but you go ahead and do it anyway. Now, some of you at various times in your life will have had different uh, aspects of courage that you've had to show. For me, it was a very courageous thing to ask my wife to marry her. For her, I think it was probably a more courageous thing to say yes. But there was a fear involved. And my concern about the church in the UK today is that we lack courage. And I want to say, I'm not talking about people who are eccentric and weird. Uh, I'm not talking about, but I'm talking about people like me who are Christian leaders who keep quiet when we shouldn't. Keep quiet. And then I want to think about what's happening in our culture and in our community, because that is really, really important to grasp where we're coming from. And again, although that there are differences throughout the United Kingdom in different cultures and different communities, I think it's the same. Now, as a Scotsman, I hate to say this, but we have gone way, way more backward than England. Uh, Scotland, which used to be known as the land of the people of the book, has now become one of the most authoritarian and anti-Christian, I was going to say regime, it's not a regime yet, but we are heading that direction. And uh, I want to warn you here down in darkest Englandshire not to go our way. And then lastly, in all of this, and also tomorrow morning when we're looking at Hebrews, we're going to look at what does Jesus actually say. How how does this all fit in? Because we're looking at Christ. Now let me apply that in, uh, in this way. There's a wonderful book by a guy called Matt Chandler called Take Heart. And Chandler uses the illustration of Augustine of Hippo who said that to be human is to have your face pushed up against a stained glass window. You see some color, but you see a lot of glass fragments. It's only given to God and those who are with him to be back far enough to see the whole window. To put it differently, to tell God the Father that he should do things differently, is to step into a three-hour-long movie for two seconds and then step back out and lecture the director on the storyline. That's what it's like. You just don't know, and he, the fountain of life, does. So in, in my work and in, in the way that I do things, I see a lot of things in culture and society that really disturb me, that I, I mean I really do disturb me, that, that cause me to lie awake at night, that cause me to be very discouraged and very depressed at times, that uh, cause me in the words of the psalmist, rivers of tears run down from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. And uh, you may think that our society is confused and confusing at the moment, but that's nowhere to where it's going if we continue in the trajectory that we are. And yet, I don't despair. Let me put it this way. Most of our politicians want to think of themselves as progressive, because what's the opposite of that, being regressive? So progressive means you're progressing somewhere. but. I believe that our culture is not progressing, it's regressing back to a Greco-Roman pagan view of the world. And that's not pleasant, that's not good. It's not good for our children, it's not good for our grandchildren. And so we need courage though to deal with that and to proclaim the gospel because the gospel flourished in the Greco-Roman pagan world. So we have to think how we do it. Now let me offer a couple of things here. There are some Christians, and some of you will probably be here, you think that we can save Christendom. I actually think Christendom was a good thing, by the way, but, but we can't. It's gone. It's gone. And there are others who think that we need to almost like go into a monastery or some kind of holy huddle and we just need to protect ourselves. And others basically think we're on the Titanic, we've just got to wait till it sinks and get in the lifeboat. My view is that these are great days for proclaiming the gospel. They are great days for bringing light into darkness. Most of the people I know, I, I do a lot of debating and discussing, and I don't think I've ever lost a debate on on these subjects, on Christianity, not because I'm brilliant or anything like that, because virtually everyone I debate against doesn't know what Christianity is. And we have this wonderful opportunity to share the gospel. Also, you may be here this afternoon and… and you may not be a Christian, and and what I want to share with you is something that is, to me, it still really excites me. It's still more wonderful than Scotland winning the World Cup, which I know hasn't happened and possibly will never happen, but if you believe in multiverse theory, it, it, it is happening somewhere in the universe. So, what we need in all of this is courage, couple of verses for you. Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Philippians 1.20, Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It takes courage to be a Christian in the world in which we live. It really does. I remember when I came out as a Christian, coming out for me was a very different thing the way our society decides it. I was quite a militant anti-Christian. I did a lot of argument against Christians. I mocked Christians. And then I won't go into any great detail, but the Lord intervened and I was converted and it was really annoying. Um, And I thought, okay, I don't like Christians. So I believe in who you are, Jesus. But I don't like Christians and I am not going to be connected with any Christians. I'm going to be a secret disciple. Well, that didn't last long because one day I was sitting in our sixth year common room and one of my friends got up who was a Christian and went to the door. He was going to a Scripture Union prayer meeting and he turned to me and he said, David, do you want to come? And everyone burst out laughing because I, I was the anti-Christian person. And I said, yes, and I got up and I went to the door. and everyone laughed because they thought I was joking. I was taking the mickey. And then I went out and I didn't come back. And I sat with that wee group in that whole school of 600. There were six people who had a prayer meeting. And I sat in that prayer meeting. And for the first time, they never did this before. And I don't think they did it again. The person on my left prayed, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. And then it came to me and I thought, I'm a Christian. I'd better pray. So I prayed. And then there was a tap on the shoulder And all these people looking at me in shock. Are you a Christian? And I said, yeah, I guess so. Wow. And then they said, David, will you do us a big favor? Next week, there's a debate in the school. Will you speak on behalf of the Christians? And I said, yeah, well, why not? So I did. And after the debate, the head of the English department came up to me and he said, Robertson, that was completely brilliant. You almost had me convinced you really were a Christian. He thought I was just arguing for the sake of it. Uh, And I said, Mr. Patterson, sir, I am and no one will ever say that to me again. And I just thought right from now on, I've got to be honest, and I've got to be bold, and I've got to show courage. And that gets uh, more and more necessary as we go on. Why do we need courage? Well, in John chapter 16, and most of what I'm gonna say comes from this, Jesus makes this promise that not many Christians have up on their walls. And it's this, all this I've told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will put you out of the synagogue. They will persecute you. He later goes on to say, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who'd acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They will put you to death, says Jesus. And that prophecy was fulfilled. Stephen, Saul witnessing there becoming Paul, James, probably most of the apostles were executed at some point. New Testament Christianity is not your better life now. And if you are not a Christian and you are here and you're thinking, you know, this Christianity stuff could really work for me. Um, I could find a partner. I could get money. I could become healthy, I could be healed, I could find happiness. I want to tell you that you shouldn't bother seeking Jesus for that. Because when you follow Jesus, you find actually a whole lot more than that, much better than that. But along with that, as Jesus said, comes also persecution. And what's the cause of that persecution? Jesus says it, they will do such things because they've not known the Father or me. Do you know, there's a common myth, and please, if you're a Christian, can I ask you not to buy into this? Here's the myth. The myth is that non-Christians really like Jesus, like Jesus is cool. Jesus is the ultimate skater boy. Jesus is the ultimate surfer. You know, Jesus has the baseball cap and the long hair and the sandals, and he's really cool and he's really nice. And everyone loves Jesus. And, and it, I find it quite funny. Someone like Richard Dawkins once uh, wrote about me, David Robertson is not very Christian, to which I wrote back, well, you should be very happy because that's what you're wanting. People not. But Christian is used in the sense of nice and good, and Jesus is used. in the Everyone loves Jesus. No, they don't. This is the point. People don't love Jesus because they don't know who Jesus is. They haven't a clue. They love their own personal Jesus. They love their own made-up Jesus. In fact, what they do is they, they have an image in their head of what they want, and then they say, this is, this is the Jesus I love. And so, What you get in the church is people go, people love Jesus and they just hate Christians. No, they don't. They hate God and they hate Jesus. And because they hate Jesus, they will hate Christians. And that's what he himself actually says, but he says, I will help you. How? I tell you, it's for your good I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Do we believe in the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a divine drug to make you feel good. I've had spiritual experiences which for me have been quite extraordinary. They've been very rare. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. You're not going to convict the, sin, the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come by, by heading into Wadebridge or Truro or wherever you're from and, and wearing a banner that says repent or you're going to hell. You're all sinners. None of that, does, it doesn't really click with people, does it? I remember doing a debate in London, in West London, and uh, half the audience were LGBTQ activists because of the nature of the debate. And at the end of the debate, there was a man who stood up, and he looked really, really angry. And he started yelling at me. And I was enormously thankful because I was even in my mind contemplating these kind of questions. Is it right to hit someone before they hit you? <laughs> and uh, is, that, is that permissible? And he stood up and he, he have yelled, you! How dare you call me a sinner? And I went, whoa, whoa, back off. Listen, I did call you a sinner, as I did everyone else here, but I want you to listen to something really important. I totally and honestly believe that I am a worse sinner than you. I know that because I have more knowledge about God than you do. I saw the look on his face. He went absolutely white. And I thought, what have you done? Have you murdered someone? You know, he, just, he, he, he went white and he sat down. And I, saw, and I saw something going on in his life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their need. Do you know if God was really to bring revival to this showground, to this creation fest at this time, one of the first things that would be happening would be that there's this sense of awe and then this sense within us of we are completely unworthy. That's what happens. And Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit to do that. I'm going to send the Spirit to guide you into all truth. I'm going to send the Spirit to glorify me. He takes from me, says Jesus, and he gives it to us. Now, I want to argue that there is a a, a natural hostility. I hate it when people are apathetic. I'm very, very used to being in meetings where people get up and walk out um, and You know, I've got so used to it nowadays. I used to think that everyone in Britain was apathetic. Now I don't. Now I think that the church is apathetic, but the culture is not. In general, the culture is antagonistic. And uh, it it is that apathy. And I wonder sometimes if God is going to bring renewal and revival in this culture, if you're going to have two things happening at once. You're going to have a pushback against biblical Christianity, and you're going to have the most amazing stories of people becoming Christians. I, I've, I've seen a fair bit in my own life of people who are very, very hostile. They're very often the ones who end up being converted. Um, I, I remember a man coming to church, and afterwards he came out, and he looked at me, and he said, he was really angry, and he said, you just come to my house so you can get information about me to preach. And I said, whoa, back off. I prepared my sermon long before I knew you were coming at church. I'm really shocked to see you here. I said, I'm sorry. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. This has nothing to do with me. This is God speaking to you. God knows what's going on in your life, and he's arranged this. And he got really scared, and he was a big grown man, worked in an oil rig and so on, and he started running down the road. And I had to laugh because one of my old elders who wouldn't say boo to a goose shouted after him, Aye, you can run, but you can't hide. (laughs) Which I thought, good for you. You can run, but you can't hide. When God's spirits at work, where can you hide? You know, I I suspect that even here, there'll be people who've come here in order to hide from God. I know that sounds weird, but that can happen. Now, I'm gonna say to the guys at the back to get the video ready, because I'm I'm gonna show you a wee video which shows the kind of hostility. I don't think the police are gonna come in here and arrest us, okay? Okay. I don't think that um, we're going to experience a lot of physical persecution. In in some ways, a little bit. I've I've experienced a little bit of it but not much. But I'm going to give you just an example. I'll give you this one example and then we'll show the video. There's an educational tribunal in the UK this year which upheld the dismissal of a Christian teacher who was fired a couple of years ago for gross misconduct after a heated discussion in her class. This lady called Slitvana Powell who had a teacher with a spotless record for 17 years. She had fired, she uh, brought a case against the Apprenticeship Academy because her contract was terminated because the school said she'd told one of her students, God loves you despite your sexual orientation. And do you know why she was fired? Under the Terrorism Act. You get that? The Terrorism Act that's meant to prevent people setting off bombs and killing people. A Christian teacher was fired under the Terrorism Act for saying God loves you. I'd like to say that's a complete exception. It's not. Now, let's see if we can see this wee video, I hope. Okay. That's Tracy Ullman, the wonderful Tracy Ullman. Um, Isn't it amazing that on a mainstream BBC comedy show, that makes sense? And people can understand that. So what I find is, I find people in the city of London, I know, meeting in secret to hold a Bible study. I find people who've become Christians, who are social workers, being incredibly reluctant to try and to, to admit to the fact that they are Christians. Sometimes it's just... It, it, it's hard. It's that kind of prejudice. Let me give you another kind because it's much more subtle than, than going beating people up. Uh, I was asked to go and speak at a university, and I agreed to go and speak to the Christian Union. And the Christian Union were told by the Students Association they couldn't have me until I'd undergone a health and safety check, and, uh, this apparently wasn't for my own health, and had submitted a copy of what I was going to say in case it upset people. Now, I've never been able to speak to myself without upsetting somebody. So, you know, the whole idea that that here was a student's association and, you know, people have to have safe spaces and we don't want to trigger people and so on. Now, let me say what's going on here. And as the church, we should not play this game. Absolutely, Jesus is concerned about the vulnerable and the bruised and the broken, So when a woman comes into my church and she runs out in tears because I've mentioned God as a loving father, which you'd think most people would accept, why was she upset? She was upset because her father had abused her, and so we talk and we share and we try and help. And I don't ridicule her or mock her for that. The very, very opposite, because it's understandable. But what's happening in our culture more and more is that the powerful are using the idea of... um, weakness and upsetting people to control the message. And so you can't say this because it will upset people. Let me give you just one one more example. I was asked to go on BBC Thought for the Day in Scotland, um, which is worse than Thought for the Day on Radio 4 in the wider UK. And they didn't trust me, so they asked me to submit a script. So I submitted the script, and they sent it back to me and said, you can't use that. I said, why not? Why not? because you use the phrase, Britain's Christian traditions. I said, but that's true. There is a Christian tradition in Britain. You still can't use it. Why not? Because some people might be offended. You want me to speak to a quarter of a million people without offending anybody? No wonder your program's so banal and boring. That, that you know, are you, are you people serious? They were deadly serious. I was banned. I was banned from speaking on the BBC because I wanted to use the phrase, Britain's Christian traditions. You see that in so many areas in so many different ways. No wonder Rico Tai says this, there's increasing hostility to the gospel message, but there's something else going on too. There's also increased hunger. The same rising tide of secularism and materialism that rejects truth claims and is offended by absolute moral standards is proving to be an empty and hollow way to live. You're more and more likely to find people quietly hungering for the content of the gospel, even as our culture teaches them to be hostile towards it. We were doing a Christianity Explored course, and uh, a young man was there. I went around everyone, and I asked them, why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? And this young man said, I was brought up as an atheist. I said, oh, why are you here? I'm backsliding. (laughs) I said, okay, I like like this concept of the backslidden atheist. Uh, Let's go for it. Another time, a girl came to our church. She was a student, and after about three or four weeks, um, uh, believe it or not, in Dundee, we're in the south to where she was, she was from Aberdeen. After about three or four weeks, her parents came down. And so I met them at the door, I said, you visiting? And they said, well, kind of, we're here to visit our daughter, that's her over there. I said, oh, she's a first year. Um, you've come down the third week, is there something wrong? Oh, yes. C- can, I, can I help with anything? Oh, no. Oh, okay, that's fine, why not? Uh, you're the problem. And I thought, what have I done? Did I, was that an inappropriate word? did I hug her? What did I do? You know, I'm just thinking, what, what have I done? I must have done something. And they said, look, we'll tell you. We brought up our daughter to be normal, not to go to church or anything like that. And she comes to Dundee and we thought, well, this will be great. You know, she, freshers week, few parties, might experiment a wee bit with some things, get a boyfriend. As long as she does her work and she's happy, we're happy. We start getting these letters. Mum, Dad, Dundee's brilliant. I'm loving it. It's great. And I've started going to this brilliant church. And I looked at them and I said, um, so you've come to check us out because you're worried that your daughter's going to church? And they said, yes. And I said, well, h- how did you find it? This was after the service. Oh, you were surprisingly normal. <laughs> now, at that point, my big mouth, I should have shut up and just quit while I was ahead. But I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, so I turned to them and I said, well, you got us on a good day. It's next week that we do the child sacrifice. (laughs) And they just went, I'm for a nanosecond. I said, guys, are you serious? Look at the portrayal of Christians on soap operas. There are what's-her-name, Doc Cotton in in EastEnders, the hypocritical, fuddy old... Duddy. And then uh, some of you are old enough to remember uh, uh, a Liverpudlian soap opera, uh, Brookside. And the, they were charismatic young Christians who blew up a building. We had Christian terrorists before ISIS, according to Channel 4. You know, and it says, You're Christian? Wow. So that Tracy Ullman sketch wasn't too far off. How do we fight that degree of hostility? Well, Jesus says, All men will hate you because of me, but by standing firm, you will gain life. Well, I want to suggest this. Number one is we stand firm. We don't give in to fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be phobic about anything. The only fear we ever have is a godly fear for awe and reverence for God. Don't be afraid. We go out. Don't huddle away. Don't hide. Now, we go out. We don't proclaim ourselves. Too many Christians are wanting to go out and say, look how wonderful we are as Christians. But honestly, you scare me when you do that. I want to stay away from you. With people bound up, if you think witnesses going and telling people how wonderful you are, and if they become Christians, they can become as wonderful as you, that's no use. I was brought up in a tradition where we used to get testimonies, a testimony meeting, where somebody would stand up, and for 25 minutes, they would talk about how they used to have a career as an axe-wielding, non-murdering, you know, rapist, and then the last couple of minutes was they were converted and suddenly everything was wonderful. And I used to think, well, I don't need to be converted because I've never done any of those things. It was, just, it was just weird. And I'm saying, we need to go out. We don't need to defend ourselves. We're not on the defense in the sense of apologetics. Now, I, I do apologetics, but when you hear the word apologetics, a lot of people think, one, it's A, apologizing. I'm really, really, really sorry for the crusades, although I had nothing to do with them. But, Uh, you know, I want to apologize. Or they think you've got to be an Oxford physics professor in order to defend the faith. No. Defending the faith is just proclaiming Christ. And that's what we need to do. So, following Jesus means you're going to get hated. That's clear. Self-righteous people don't want a savior because they don't want to admit they need one. We are not to be the judgmental, looking down on other people, but the gentle, loving people who follow the pattern of Jesus, loving our enemies, loving God's enemies too, but realizing that it doesn't take away the hatred. If they've hated me, they will hate you also. Matt Chandler says this, courage gives us the ability in this age of unbelief to speak positively and seek unity, to love those who disagree with us and seek to malign us. To be unsurprised, not angered, when a society that j- rejects Christ does not line up its laws with those of Christ, and to keep on loving and seeking to bless. Do you know that God is not going to judge our society because of the laws that they're making at this moment in time? The laws that they're making at this moment in time are, according to Romans 1, the judgment. Do you know what God' judgment is? I call it the Burger King judgment. Have it your own way. Do it your way. God is saying to our culture, sure, you want to reject me and my word, do it your own way. And what a mess we are getting into. Now, Christians shouldn't be people who are huddling up and going, this is terrible, we warned you, and so on. We're not the private Fraser, that Scottish caricature of someone going, doom, doom, we're all doomed. That's not that. But Christians are people who stand against the tide and against the flow with great hope And we are people who love our enemies, which, by the way, makes them hate us even more. They just get really, really, really annoyed. So we respond, I think, in that way. We're filled with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. We're filled with the weapons of the Spirit, Ephesians 6. That is what we use. We pray in the Spirit on all kinds of occasions. We proclaim Christ The counselor will come, Jesus says. After my death death and resurrection, the counselor will come. And then there's that presence of Christ by which he communicates to us himself through the grace and power of his spirit. Why were the disciples filled with grief when Jesus told them he was going to die and leave them? Do you know this? They weren't filled with grief because of him, they were filled with grief because of them how can you leave us? Look what we've done for you. How can you leave us like that? They were too much attached to the visible presence. And Christ says, I'm going to give you something better, better than if I were here. I'm going to send you my spirit. And my spirit is going to remind you of everything I've said. My spirit is going to fill you. My spirit is going to equip you for evangelism. One man writes this: "Far more advantageous and far more desirable is that presence of Christ by which he communicates himself to us through the grace and power of his spirit than if we were present before our eyes." First Corinthians 14:24. There, Paul talks about the unbeliever coming into the, the gathering of God's people and being so convicted. They are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. How many of you have been to a church service that's been like that? How many of you cannot and do not take your non-Christian friends to the church you go to because you think they will be embarrassed and you don't think that they will meet Jesus? I'm utterly astounded Utterly astounded that we believe that when we gather together, we're worshiping and meeting Jesus. It's the most astonishing thing, and He's present. You no, know, can you imagine if somebody really, really famous was to come to your church and sort of be a, a regular part of it? I mean, I don't know who you're really keen on, but um, I don't know. I used to look in the mirror. I mean, in today's society, you can be whatever you want to be. So I'm Brad Pitt. I look like Brad Pitt. I'm as handsome as Brad Pitt. So that's fine. Um, but if I said to people, come to our church and you'll meet Brad Pitt, and they saw me, uh, I suspect they might not share uh, my self-identity. But supposing I did have somebody as, as, as famous as that. There are lots of people who say, well, we'll invite them, we'll invite them. But we've got Jesus, except do we? We really need to ask that. We really need to ask if, if the Lord is present with us. And if non-Christians could come into our worship and not go, wow. They're a bunch of weirdos. But that they, they would be they would be utterly they would sense God being present. I, I've in, in recent days we've been really blessed in my own church and I I keep meeting people who are saying, This is not what I expected. There's something here, there's something here. I can't explain it. We are always to be pointing about Christ. If we're talking about courage and talking about courage in witness then we're doing it in the sense of talking about Jesus Christ and doing things and proclaiming Christ. And here's the problem. How many of you here have fallen into the trap of, you you say you're against religion, but you've still, it's the religious stuff, isn't it? You've forgotten Jesus. You remember when you first became a Christian and you kind of knew Jesus but the relationship's gone a bit cold. It's as though you're married to someone and you've been married for 10, 15 years, and for the past five years, you've grown distant. How can you introduce people to a Jesus whom you don't know? I used to say to people, I believe in Jesus, and we can argue about the history and the philosophy and the Bible and everything, but at the end of the day, you will no more convince me that Jesus is not alive than you will convince me my wife doesn't exist. And they used to think that was such an extreme position. But it's the biblical position. If we've met the risen Christ… Now, you don't have to have seen a vision. I've never seen a vision. You don't have to have literally met Jesus. I've, I've actually met loads of people who claim they're Jesus. I visit psychiatric unions units. I, I've met Moses and Jesus and, and the devil, lots of the devils. But that's not what's been spoken of here. What's been spoken of here is the Christ of the Bible. And so here's my problem in terms of uh, courageous witness in a culture which is opposed to God. What do we do with all of that? How, How does all of that work out? Well, we need to point people to Christ, but people don't know who Jesus is, So I ask people to believe in Jesus, but what does that mean? You can say, come here, here you go, put your faith in Jesus. But if they don't know who Jesus is, how can they do that? So we have to tell them about Jesus. And we have to get rid of the images that they've got in their own minds. And we have to teach Jesus to ourselves as well. I was at a university in Scotland and doing a debate with the Atheist Society. And at the end of that particular debate and discussion... The head of the Atheist Society stood up, and this has never happened to me before and hasn't happened to me against, and he stood up and he said, David, you have destroyed my atheism. Now, what do you believe? And I thought it was a joke. I, I didn't think he was serious. And it turned out he was serious. And I said, well, I believe, and I listed some of the things I believed. And then he said to me, why do you believe? And I started listing the reasons. And then I stopped and I said, do you know this? at the end of the day, the reason I believe is because of Jesus. And then he looked at me and he asked a question which for me changed a lot of things. He said, yes, but who's Jesus? How would you answer that question? So I went away and I thought about it. How do you answer who Jesus is to people who've never gone to church? In fact, how do you answer who Jesus is to people who have gone to church and who've got the wrong idea? So I went away to look for a book. I couldn't find one, so I wrote one. (laughs) Um, And we called it Magnificent obsession, and that was purely and simply because I wanted to be able to give something to all my non Christian friends that spoke about who Jesus is there in the Bible. And you know, they get it. We had a Chinese girl uh, from China, that's how I knew she was Chinese, and she uh, came to a Christianity Explored course we were doing. Never been in church, never seen a Bible. She uh, halfway through, I think the second one, I noticed her and she was really upset. She was crying. And so I I said to her, excuse me, are are you okay? And she said, yes, I am. And she was sobbing. And I said, I'm sorry, but what's wrong? She said, it's not sorrow. She said, it's Jesus. He's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. And of course she became a Christian. She got it. She saw it another time doing an outreach event in a cafe. There was a woman there, and uh, it was a secular cafe, and she'd come in, and she'd bought her Danish and her cappuccino, and she's sitting down, and I stand up, start speaking, doing an outreach event. She's raging because she's come in to have but So she goes, and she sits in the corner. She was going to get up and walk out, but she was Scottish, and she'd already spent the money, so she wasn't going to leave it for someone else. And if you're Scottish, I apologize for the stereotype, but come on, you know it's true. We are the most generous. Statistically, by the way, did you know the Scots are the most generous people in the world? Yeah, thank you. So, (laughs) But anyway, so she sits over in the corner. Now, here's a wee trick. If you are determined not to listen to someone, it's really hard. You know, it's like saying, don't think a lustful thought. Well, you're going to think it. So she went over in the corner, turned her back on me, And bit by bit, she turned, and she came closer and closer and closer. And at the end, she's sitting at the front. She puts her hand up. She says, I want to ask a question. And this was the last question. I said, what is it? She said, you said that God loves you. How can you know that God loves you? And she said, I don't mean generally. I mean you, you personally. How can you personally know that God loves you? And so I said, well, okay, I'm going to tell you. And I explained what Jesus did on the cross. And I explained about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I was really quite taken up with it. And when we finished, and she looked at me, and her eyes were wide, wide open. And she said, David, I am not saying that I believe that. But if that is true, that is the most wonderful thing I have ever heard. There were Christians around looking at her going, wow, look at her. And I spoke to them afterwards, and I said, do you know this? She got the cross better than most of us. It is the most wonderful thing we've ever heard, and we should be dying to tell people about it. Let me apply this just in a couple of ways before we take a a break. And by the way, I I am a postmodern Scottish Presbyterian minister, so the word finally is meaningless. Uh, But finally, (laughs) what about, what, what if you were not a Christian? What if you're sitting here and Basically, it's just you're just sitting here because it's something to do, because it's too hot and you can't be bothered going to the beach and you're listening to this and bits of it you're getting and bits of it you're not. What if you don't believe in Jesus? Listen to what he says. Oops, I did that already. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Do you know Rejection of Jesus is serious because it's a rejection of God himself. Jesus comes and he gives himself for humanity. And you hear that story and what you do, even if you don't say no, what you do is you're turning your back on God and on the God who gave himself for you. You know what it's like? Let's suppose You're a young woman and this young man asks you to marry him. You don't want to hurt his feelings so you don't say no. But you don't say yes. You walk away. You leave it. By not answering, you're answering. One of the things that scares me in our churches is that there are so many people who've been coming to church for years because they like it, because they were brought up to it, because they're used to it, because they like the singing, because they've got some friends there, because occasionally they've had nice experiences and all that kind of stuff, and they've heard the gospel numerous times and they've never ever said yes to Jesus. I became a Christian because I think five times in my life I was deeply conscious that the gospel was true and I should say yes to Jesus. And each time I said not yet. And then the last time I was absolutely convinced you say no this time, that's it, you're done. My spirit will not always strive with man. And I think one of the sad things about our evangelism is that we've lost this sense of urgency. You know? I had four friends who were killed in a car crash when I was a teenager. That makes you urgent. I had a member in my congregation, 40 years old, a brilliant guy, lecturer, absolutely not a day of illness in his life, went home, said to his mum, I've got a sore head, sat down and died. Massive brain hemorrhage. Some of you will know, not, not many of you know, you, you shouldn't, not, why should you know, but uh, in 2011 um, I was in ICU, I was in a coma. And my wife was told that I probably wouldn't live. Well, I did. They told me that I'd be really they told her that I'd be really brain damaged. I know the jokes, but I I wasn't. Um, My doctor, who is a Muslim, says uh, he'd been a surgeon for thirty years. says he can't explain it. He regards it as a miracle, totally as a miracle. But I'll tell you this: one thing, when you come that close, he said to me afterwards. You know what he said, David? He said. You are a very blessed man because you deal with the most important things known to humanity by far, and you have been right to the edge. I didn't go to heaven, by the way, and meet St. Peter, turn me back. I didn't go to hell. None of that happened. One BBC journalist said, that's a shame. You'd have made a fortune on the New York Times bestsellers list. But that's not what it's about. But what I did come to realize was how serious all this is and how fragile all of us are. And how we need to see things in the light of eternity. And how Christ came to seek and to save those who are perishing. And that's you without Christ. You are perishing. And you need to come to know Christ. Let me apply this in another way. This is a quote from a guy called Gregory. And I'll read it in a moment. But The writer Doug Copeland, when he was asked in an interview, what is your greatest fear said that God exists but doesn't care very much for us. Fascinating answer. God sends his gospel, and the gospel is good news for the poor, and the gospel is good news for the whole of society. What our country needs is not Brexit or not Brexit. Isn't it amazing? Well, it's amazing to me how fanatical people have become about whether we belong to a political project in Europe or not. It's not that I don't care, I've got my own views about it, but it's not going to make all that much difference to our culture. What will make an enormous difference to our culture is this. In this land, in Scotland, in England, in Ireland, and in Wales, God has blessed these nations with outpouring of His Spirit many, many times, and now there's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord, including within the Christian church. Too many churches are just maintaining themselves. Too many churches have turned away from Christ. Too many churches have forgotten who is the head of the church. Not the queen, not the pope, not your local pastor, not your local prophet. But Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And when we recover that gospel, then what happens is this. Society is turned upside down. See, people say we mustn't upset people and we mustn't, you know, we must create safe spaces for people. We must do all of that. I'm saying this. If you're going to preach the gospel in this culture, you are really going to upset people. Polly Toynbee in the Guardian was triggered by Narnia. It's just brilliant. She went to see the Narnia film and she wrote this really angry pieces. I don't need someone to die for me. She got it. The gospel, the cross is offensive. She didn't go, that's a cute wee film. She got it. When you preach the gospel to people, you are going to get a reaction which at times borders on the, on the visceral. To some people, you are the perfume of life, and to others, you are the stench of death. But it's that gospel that turns the world upside down. Do you know what we need in our housing estates? I've got, we've got seven big housing schemes in Dundee. Do you know what the police call them? The reservations. When the Indians come in from we have 1,500, at least 1,500 people who are dying from drug addiction. We have something like seven or eight out of 10 children do not live with both their parents. So what are we going to do? We're going to do the, the, the food kitchen. We're going to do the drugs projects. We're going to do all of those things. But unless the gospel gets into those communities, it's all a waste of time. It's all Deciding what paint you're putting on the Titanic, and that's why the great thing that we have got for every single community in this in this culture is the gospel. Um, You know, the Wesleys, Britain in in the time of the Wesleys and George Whitfield was a pit. It was a cesspit. And they went to places and they went to, to working-class areas and they preached the gospel and people became Christians. And it turned Britain upside down. So we didn't have a French Revolution. So we did get democracy. So we did get hospitals. Do you know the NHS and our welfare system and everything, our education system, all stems from real biblical Christianity. Gregory of Nisa, the man called Gregory the Theologian. I read this and I was just so, I so loved this. And with this, I will stop and we'll take a, a break for half an hour and you're welcome to come back for part two where we're going to look at what it means to have courage in the home and uh, courage in the church. And, and it will take me a great deal of courage to do that latter one. But right now, we're talking about the courage that we need to tell people about Jesus. Not about your church, not about your good works. I'm tired of hearing churches going, we do this for the poor and we do that. You do it, shut up. You're not, you're, not, you're not advertising how good you are. You're not virtue signaling. You do it because it's the right thing to do. You don't play table tennis with kids so that you can bribe them into your church. You play it because table tennis is a good thing to do. You skateboard because skateboarding is a good thing to do. But most of all, you tell people about Jesus. You're not responsible for them believing but you're responsible for telling them. Gregory says this, Yesterday I was crucified with him. Today I am glorified with him. Yesterday I died with him. Today I'm made alive with him. Yesterday I was buried with him. Today I rise again with him. To him who suffered and rose for us, let us offer what? What are you going to offer Jesus, given what he's done for you? Maybe you think I'm going to say we should offer him gold, silver costly tapestries, crystal clear precious stones, but such things are the earth's mere vanishing stuff, forever limited to this world, generally owned by bad people, the world's slaves, the bondsmen of this world. Is money your aim in life? How can you be a Christian? You can't go to church because you're too busy making money. How can you be a Christian? How does that make sense? Christ died for you and you can't even be bothered to go and worship him? No, says Gregory, let's offer him our very selves, that which is most valuable to God and most fitting as an offering. Let's give back to the divine image what is made according to that image. Let's acknowledge the dignity of our own creation. Let's honor him who is our model. Let's experience the power of the mystery of his salvation and the purpose of his death. Let's become like Christ since Christ became like us. Let's become divine people for him since he became human for us. He took upon himself the worst to bestow on us the better. He became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. He took upon him the form of a slave to give us back our freedom. He came down to lift us high. He was tempted that we might gain victory. He was ashamed to glorify us. He embraced death that he might give us salvation. He ascended heavenwards that he might draw to himself those who are lying prostrate, fallen through sin. Let us give all, let us offer all to him who gave himself as the price of our redemption and our reconciliation but we can give him nothing as precious as ourselves. How many of you go to churches in which you think that your service is done because you pay for people to do the religious bits for you? You pay for people to do evangelism. You haven't time. You pay for people to do the youth work. You've never invited a young person into your own home. You pay for people to preach and even to pray for you. Say a prayer for me. Come on what does Christ want? He doesn't want your money. He wants you and everything that goes along with you. And the reason the church is so ineffective in our witness in this culture and the reason we are so afraid is because we don't see and glorify Christ in our own lives and we don't love the Jesus that we sing about how much we love Him. At a conference like this you have a great opportunity as a Christian to go quietly and to weep before the Lord and say Lord, I let you down I've been mucking around with all the trivial stuff, you want me, you actually want me, I give you all that I have I give you all that I am couple of books to help you follow up Matt Chandler's Take Heart Honestly, brilliant little book. Christian courage in an Age of Unbelief. And then the book I mentioned about um, Jesus Christ. And then there's another one here. I belong to an organization called Solas. Uh, and this book is called Why We Still Believe. You can get a free copy of it at the back. Actually, it's not a free copy because we'd like you to support us. And if you support us, you'll get a free copy. So if that's free, I'm not sure. Um, but it's uh, please do. We will be at the back. And... T- Solace exists to try and help and equip people to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Andy Bannister and myself will be there in the next half hour and then after the, the next talk as well. But it's not about… Solace is a Gallic word meaning light. What we're doing is not about, you know, organizations and, and techniques and so on. The thing is just this, how are, we, how are we going to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to people who are just not interested? How do we get people to be interested? I think by knowing Jesus better ourselves and also, also by learning, learning how to communicate, learning how to share. I have, I'm, I'm, as I said, I've not seen visions, but if you like, this is a vision for you. I look over the whole of the United Kingdom and what I see is a famine. I can walk in any street, any city center, any village, and I know that there are people who are dying, that there are people who are perishing, that there are people who are eternally lost. And it's like being in the midst of the largest famine in Ethiopia or whatever, and yet behind me there are convoys and convoys and convoys of food. I have nothing to give to people except Jesus. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give you. I have nothing to give. You have nothing to give except Jesus. Except here is the thing. It doesn't matter if you're Polish or, or Pakistani or um, English, London, wealthy, poor. It doesn't matter if you're a drug addict. It doesn't matter if you're heterosexual, homosexual. It doesn't matter how you self identify. Jesus is for everyone, and Jesus is the good news for everyone, and we have the good news. It is not our job to convert Britain, but it is our job to tell the United Kingdom and beyond about this Jesus and leave the Holy Spirit to do his work. So I'm going to leave it there. We'll take a break, head for the beach, come back in half an hour. And be cold. Um, If you want to meet us at the back, please feel free to do that. As I said, at three o'clock, we're going to go on and look at um, the home, how we present Christ in the home, and the church, why we need courage in the church. May God bless you all. Thank you. Well, again, I'd like to welcome you on a beautiful, sunny day. It was great to see so many and uh, coming inside to cool off. We're going to continue. If you weren't here in the earlier session, I was looking at the need for courage in our witness. And as you can see, we're going to look at two things, courage in our homes, in the household and courage in the church. Uh, Pascal says this. Jesus Christ is the object of all things, the center to which all things tend. Whoever knows him knows the reason for everything. Jesus is the center of all, the object of all. Whoever knows not him knows nothing aright, either of the world or of himself. In him is all our happiness, our virtue, our life, our light, our hope. <clears throat> I find it quite interesting as a pastor visiting people in the church. They're often very willing to talk about many different things, their family, Um, lots of church issues. I just wonder, sometimes they seem quite reluctant to talk about Jesus, and yet really that is where it's all at. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. We're not tied in. We don't follow a particular religion, if you like, or denomination or philosophy. Our truth is found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So What I want to do is I want us to consider how we show courageous witness, first of all, in our homes. And I want to refer you to Joshua 24, now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorite in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's very difficult in today's culture. How, how do you bring up children to serve the Lord? Because we don't brainwash people. Seriously, we don't. We, we uh, teach people. It's great. Um, my own church, we had virtually... Uh, no children at all. When I went to St. Peter's Church in Dundee, which is the church of the well-known Robert Murray McShane, there were seven people left when I went there, and four of them left when I went there. It's what we call a Scottish revival. And, and uh, um, just no children for ages. My two children grew up in a church where there were no people their own age until they were 16, 17, 18 years old. And yet now, uh, the Lord is really blessed and many, many, we have many children who are coming. And one of the big things is we invest a lot in the children, teaching them the Bible, because, and and teaching them about Jesus and bringing them up in a Christian community where the word of God is honored. Because that's what they need to live in the world that we have today. And it's always a joy to see uh, some young people here as well. I always smile when people say the young people are the future of the church. No, they're not. They're the church now as well, and that's important to remember that. But how do we do that? How how do we bear testimony in our own homes? I mean, the different circumstances we have. What do we do? Let me give you an example of a guy who uh, was converted through a prayer meeting, and he said to me, "Dave, what am I going to do? I, I'm I've got two kids." But I'm not married. My partner, you know, should I leave her? What do I do? It's a complex, difficult situation. Of course, he stays with him. He's got his two kids. His, his partner wasn't very happy at him becoming a Christian, but they've survived and doing pretty well. Uh, she wasn't going to come to church at all, but I employed her as a cleaner, so she had to come. <laughs> there are different ways that you can do things. But it, it, is, it is complicated and it's difficult. What do you do if your children are growing up in a context where... Maybe they've had a bad experience of Christianity, maybe you have. So I do think the community of the church is really, really important. Couple of principles. Number one, households serve the Lord. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We are, we live in an individualistic culture and I think that is one of our problems. And in biblical times they had this concept of the household which is a concept which exists in most cultures today and still uh, to a large extent in the United Kingdom as well. But the idea of the family is very much under attack in our culture. Now I found this a fascinating thing. I've been to the United States occasionally, not a a whole lot, and I don't particularly like fast food, but there's one that I do like, and it's called Chick-fil-A, and I was uh, astonished to discover as a good Scottish Sabbatarian that they never open on a Sunday, and that they're a Christian-based company, and they pay their workers fair wages and all the rest of it, and then I read this statement from the CEO of Chick-fil-A, we are very much supportive of the family. The biblical definition of the family unit. We are a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. We give God thanks for that. We know it might not be popular with everyone, but thank the Lord we live in a country where we can share our values and operate on biblical principles. Well, he spoke to you soon because that particular message in today's culture, social media, means you're going to get the hate, and he got the hate. For example, Ram Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, said Chick fil A values are not Chicago values. James Kenny, a Philadelphia councilman, said this was hate speech. Imagine that. You say you believe in the family, and it's hate speech. We're living in a culture where it is getting more and more difficult. What do we mean by family now? You need to understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying, for example, if you're a single parent, whoa, you're condemned. I'm not saying that if you're in, you know, all families have problems, right? I mean, I've met families that are Little House on the Prairie, the Waltons, whatever, you know, they they seem perfect, and they're like perfect Christians, and they all come in, and they're like, they're all dressed immaculately, and they all sit in the chairs or pews and behave wonderfully, and I just know that they're screwed up. All families, all families are a mess, okay? You're not unique in that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at what God has to say about the family because it is really, really crucial. I mean, I feel in particular that the poor in this country have suffered from what I call the middle-class liberal bourgeois morality of the late 1960s being imposed upon the rest of us. So I do a camp for kids, and 18 of the 20 kids, you can't say go home to your mum and dad because they don't have a mum and dad at home. I said to one kid, can you go and tell your dad about this? He said, which one? I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, I've got a Monday dad, a Tuesday dad, a Wednesday dad, a Thursday dad, and a Friday dad. And he was serious. You know, it's a mess. We, our society is a mess. Do you know, if you really wanted to help with the homelessness problem, with so many issues, if we could sort out families. Now, I'm very wary of politicians who say that because you know almost immediately they say they're for family values. they probably going to be something wrong uh, there. But nonetheless as Christians, that's something that we can fight for. And one of the things I've noticed very much is no matter the background of people, they tend to be very supportive of this idea of family and the church as a family, which we'll come on to in a moment. But to give you an example of how confused it is, this is a poster in one of our local schools to six and seven-year-olds mum and dad equals love, auntie and uncle equals love, foster mum and foster dad equals love, mum plus mum equals love, dad plus dad's boyfriend equals love, mum plus mum's girlfriend equals love, and so on. And in our culture, we're told, love is love, and love is, you know, it's, it's like the most meaningless thing ever. We believe in love. Well, what does that mean? What is love? And how do we define love? And how many people have been abused in the name of Love. If you love me, you will do this. One of the saddest things I ever see are the number of women who are in abusive relationships and yet remain within them because they don't see any alternative, and it's horrendous. It's a thousand times more horrendous when the person who's doing the abusing professes to be a Christian or to be religious and yet still continues. But what I'm trying to say is, in our culture and in our society, there's a great deal of confusion about what the family is, and as Christians, my view is that rather than doing so much the political campaigning, which we must do, we must show an example. So let, let me explain. The, the, one of the, the camp I mentioned where 18 of the 20 kids didn't have a mom and dad to go home to. Uh, the person who ran these camps said, David, do you think Annabelle, your wife, will come with you? And I said, yeah. I said, you seem very keen on her coming. Why? And he said, I'll explain later. So they came and we, we shared this place in the Scottish Glens. And, and then I realized almost instantly why. Because there was one wee boy who just hung around her like a wee lapdog all the time. You know, he was, it, it, was, um, it was just amazing. And he, hadn't, he just hadn't seen a, a proper relationship between two adults. So, households serve the Lord. Also in this regard, think of it this way. We, we think of individuals, and we look for individual conversion, and that's correct. But look at this in terms of the very famous conversion of the Philippian jailer. He brought them out, asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now, I'm not going to get into all the arguments about different kinds of baptism because we are united here as Christians. There are those who are adult Baptist only, those who are infant Baptists as well, and, 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 and so on. And I have a congregation that's, that's filled with both. And I guess in heaven we'll find out uh, which one was right. But it's not the big issue of the day. But for me, there's an issue here um, where the jailer is told, you believe, you singular, and you and your household, plural, will be saved. We say, well, how can, how can I believe for my children? Well, to some extent, you can because you determine what's going to happen in your home. Now, let me explain it this way. Uh, my children are all growing up now, but when my uh, son was a teenager, we sat down to talk about some things because the culture that we live in, you know, and there's a danger that Christian teenagers live a double life. They have a life at church, and they have a life with their mates, and so on. And so I, I said to him, son, we've got some basic rules here in this house, and there are things I would like you to do, but I'm not going to force you. So my son was uh, into metal music, you know, um, heavy metal. If you're into it, you all look like you're into heavy metal. So um, just a bit of head banging and nod if you want, if you want to do it. But um, he's really into heavy metal. And so that's the full works. You know, that's the hair down to the waist and all the rest of it. And I thought, oh, my goodness. But that, it's not a big issue. But I told him these are the big issues. As a household... First of all, you're never cheeky to your mother. That's a big no. Secondly, you don't get drunk and we don't do drugs in this home. That's a big no. And thirdly, as a household, we go to church. We worship God. When you're 16, 17, 18, leave home, whatever, you decide what you do with your own household. But that's what we do in this house. I'm a bit puzzled as how many Christian parents say, you know, I'm just going to let my children decide whether whether they go to church or not. Why? Do you let them decide if they brush their teeth? Do you let them decide if they go to school? Do you as a household serve the Lord or not? We do. Another aspect of that, this household thing, it is a cultural thing. Uh, In the highlands of Scotland, uh, a friend of mine who was a minister there, he told me that uh, a local Muslim family We've been talking to quite a lot. The the husband phoned him up at three in the morning, and he was really excited. He said, "Kenny, Kenny, Kenny, I've become a Christian. It's great. It's fantastic." He said, oh, "You're phoning me at three in the morning. This is wonderful. Thank you. But you know, okay, fair enough. Why? why what do you want? I want two things. What's that? I want a bacon sandwich." And, 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 and I want to—I want my whole family to be baptized. We're all going to follow Jesus. See, that's strange culturally to us. But to him it wasn't. We're going to follow. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think we're called also, in that regard, to fear and serve the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, Again, we don't like that. Why would you want to be afraid? Because it's the right kind of fear. Because it's the fear of awe. Because it's a fear that recognizes you're not in charge but there's somebody more powerful and greater than you are who… He is genuinely awesome. Last Sunday morning we had uh, communion in our church and just every now and then this happens. But there was a uh, not communion, but what I'm about to describe. Um, there was just a moment in a church where there was about 300 people, where there was just absolute stillness and silence that I couldn't explain. And it was just that sense of of awe. And I think it's good to fear God, in the same way as it's good. To fear, if you like, the power of nature or whatever. Anyone who's… We we talked in the earlier session about courage and there's a wrong… It's it's not courage to just be stupid. It's not courage to shake your fist at God. It's right to fear Him. But that's the beginning of then, wisdom. And then what we do is each of us use whatever gift we've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. The family works together to serve God. And I think that's something that we're missing here. You know, do you belong to a home group? Well, your home should be a home group. Every time someone comes into your home, they should be experiencing something of Christ. When I wasn't a Christian as a teenager, I'd go to a friend's house, and the father was an elder in the church. And they used to, as a family, they always, after their evening meal, had what they called the books. And what that meant was we'd all sit in the living room and he'd bring out a Bible, he'd bring out a psalm book, he'd read the Bible and then say something or they might sing something which was really embarrassing and then they got on their knees to pray. And I was utterly amazed at this. The old man, younger men, women, children, everyone got on their knees. Now you see, in that, I recognized there was a real Christianity. I recognized that there was something utterly amazing there. It, 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 sometimes in church, it felt like it was all artificial and people were, it was like a stage performance. And yet, there was just so, there's something real about Christianity in the home. My kids, uh, none of them went to school where there were any Christians in their class. And so they'd come back and they'd maybe have a meal with us. And I'd say, Boys and girls, this is what we do, or I would say whatever their name was. This is what we do in this house. We always give thanks to God for the food, and this is how we do it. They saw Christianity at work in the home. So I want to ask this. In terms of your home, if you're a Christian home, how are you serving God? How are you using God in your home? What about, what about an old thing like family worship? Do you pray together with your children? I think that's really, really important do you train and educate your children? And what about children in the church? Can I say something about this? Just because I do feel very passionately and, and strongly about this. Why do we need to talk down to children? Do you know that your brain is growing till you're about seven years old and after that it's downhill? So why, why, why can't we encourage our children to ask questions? Why are you sending children off to school where they're being taught often stuff that goes against Christianity, and they never are allowed to ask anything in terms of uh, at home. You know, we should be teaching our children. We should be teaching our young people, and we should be asking them to ask questions, and we should stop giving them just the simplistic answers. I had had loads of questions when I was a child, and because they weren't answered, I turned away from the faith. And also… Just children being involved in general. My youngest daughter said to me one time, Dad, why don't you make everyone come to the evening service? And I said, what's that about? She said, I didn't really like the morning service. We had Sunday school and we had all this kind of stuff. But I like going to the evening service because I got to meet grown-ups." And she said, I think you should make every child come to the evening service. I said, well, I don't really have that in my power, but it's a good idea. And then, I, it's, it's a little bit different for me. I mean, I am a preacher, obviously, and so on. But um, one of the issues for us is you know, I teach God's word, and then we invite people back to our home on a Sunday evening, and we have this big old table, and Sunday at uh, lunchtime, and my wife generally cooks a traditional, you know, British lunch, you know, roast lamb or something. Uh, and then we have all these people come, and we sit. And, and then they, go, they come into our living room, and people sometimes they sit and talk about the weather, but often they'll sit and talk about what they've heard in church. And I believe that the, the hospitality around our table has done as much good, if not as much, if not more good, than my preaching in the church. And I, I want to encourage our people to be more hospitable. Not right, you're on the rota for hospitality, and you're invited to our house because it's your turn, because you're on the rota. I'm fed up of. Uh, rotors. What is it Milton Jones says about rotors? Why is church like a helicopter or helicopter blades? Because the nearer you get into it, the quicker you get chopped up in the rotors. Well, I, I, it, it's not so much that, it's just there should be a hospitality. Now, some of us naturally have the gift of hospitality. I think of one lady I know who's married to one of my elders, and I'd go around on a Thursday night at 10 o'clock at night and she'd have 30 people in the house eating and drinking. i go, oh man, you're amazing. But you don't need to be that. One student invited us around for a meal, myself and my family, and it was lovely. Although Sunday lunch, baked beans on toast, um, was not what you normally expect. But actually, it's Proverbs, isn't it? Better a meal of vegetables served with love than a fatted calf with hatred. I think hospitality is really important. My oldest daughter was asked one time by somebody, trying to cause a little bit of trouble, didn't you hate the fact that your parents always had people home on a Sunday, and you didn't get your parents to yourself. Do you know what my daughter said? She looked at them and said, are you mad? A whole afternoon with my mum and dad stuck indoors. Forget it. It was much better. We got to meet loads of people. So family units should work together for the Lord. Now, that's obviously not true, not possible, if you've got one partner who's a believer and another who isn't. But I'm saying that that's a, 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 a norm that we should aim for. Then, um, we mustn't mix and match. What do I mean by that? Moses, he chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God other than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I have a very public profile. And at time, that's really hurt my family. Three months ago, I I mean, things like, this is a small thing, people unfriending you on Facebook and all that kind of stuff. But things like three months ago, we went on sabbatical. I went on sabbatical to Sydney, Australia. And I landed, and my daughter phoned me. And I'd been in the newspapers in Scotland and stuff. Uh, on um, the whole transgender issue. And my daughter was in tears because officials at her university had asked her to basically disown her dad. That's illegal. She's got her own mind. But that's hard. It's hard when there's pressure put on. It's hard when people say, why don't you do this? Or "What, what about this? And we say, well, we don't, because we follow Jesus, and that's what we do. We're not going to shove things down your throat, but we are going to follow Christ. I quite liked um, this poster. It's a a satirical poster, but the fact is it took a while to work out that it actually was satirical. Fight for tolerance. Do you know someone whose personal convictions inform him that marriage is strictly between one man and one woman? Gender is immutable, and so on. We will not tolerate intolerance. That's what we say. And then we describe in our culture what tolerance and intolerance is. Here's the most amazing thing. Tolerance, diversity, and equality are terms that come from Christianity. And they exist in our culture because of Christianity. But as our culture rejects Christianity, it's not becoming more tolerant. It's not becoming more diverse. And it's not becoming more equal. It's becoming less so. And we as Christians, if we have different values from the culture, then we're in trouble. Recently, the head of the Scottish National Party in Westminster was on BBC Radio 4, and he was arguing about who's a, who's a real Scot and who isn't, and he said, someone who shares our values. And do you know what that meant? It meant that somebody like me, who's been born and bred in Scotland, lived there virtually all my life, and I'm i 'm not really Scottish because i don 't share inverted commas the values that they have, but someone else who may come in from outside and says they share the values well they are well that 's not tolerance that 's intolerance so wh- when i 'm saying we must not mix and match i 'm not saying that we say right we don 't want anything to do with non Christians the very opposite if you have a good solid Christian home, you can have loads of people in I expect non Christians to behave like non christians i don 't when someone You know, one of my teenager's friends comes in and sits down and says, I'm gay. I'm just like, uh-huh, and what else? I don't fight with people and, you know, we show hospitality and love to absolutely everybody. But we have values and we follow Christ and we're not going to compromise on that. So that that. It's a, it's, it's a matter of the heart, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, if somebody says to me, David, if you have the wrong opinion about my views, I'm going to be really hurt. And then they ask me what my opinion is. I'm going to tell them even if it does hurt because I may love them but maybe it's because I love them that I would do this, but also I love Jesus more. And I don't want ever to deny what Jesus says. I don't want to say what Jesus, you know, I don't want to say something like Jesus says this and he doesn't, but I don't want ever to deny what Jesus says. And you know, it's a, it takes a very little. You don't have to be militant. You don't have to parade on the streets, but just a Christian parent going into school and saying, excuse me, But what you're teaching my children, I really do not like, and I don't think it's right, and I don't think it's correct. And you'd be amazed what kind of influence you can have. When did we become so spineless? Don't call it love. It's spinelessness when we won't stand up for what we know to be true. We have to do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And that means loving your neighbor as yourself. We choose, I think, to follow God, to follow Christ. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears says, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I read an article in a journal this week uh, saying there's no such thing as free will. In the secular world, there's not. But in the Christian world, there is. Choose this day who you will serve. Lots of things impact upon our choices, but God has made us in His image and we still get to choose. And it takes courage to make the right choice. The sad thing about the Joshua story is they served the Lord through the rest of Joshua's lifetime, and then after his death they chose to worship the deities of the Amalekites. Joshua was in the minority. They aroused the Lord's anger, says Judges 2.10, because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. By the mercy and grace of God, we will serve the Lord. And serving the Lord, as I said, does not mean that we're an exclusive group, but it does mean that we are, uh, you know, just committed in love to Jesus, and then we serve our communities in that way. Now… And tied in with that, we choose the day, as I said, we need to have a courageous church. And I do want to say something about the church before we finish. I mentioned a book, um, The Book That Made Your World by Vishnu Mangalwadi. And I, I think this is a wonderful, wonderful book because he's an Indian who's looking in on the West. And he's, he's saying, this is how you got where you got to today. And if you're going to give up on the roots, then... You're going to lose the fruits. And I would strongly recommend that book. But we need courage in the church. We need courage to evangelize. Paul's farewell to Ephesians in Acts 20, verses 25 to 27. Really, really amazing verses. You know what Paul had done in Ephesians? This this is possibly where he'd done this. He hired a lecture hall. The lecture hall was of a, a man whose nickname was Tyrannus, obviously not his real name. Most of my teachers at school, by the way, they had uh, nicknames. I, I'm assuming that my English teacher wasn't really called Mrs. Spittlebag, um, but they, they had nicknames. We called them all nicknames. Um, this guy, a lecturer, was called Tyrannus probably because he was a tyrant. But Paul hired his hall at this time of day when it was really, really hot, and he did it for two years. And he evangelized. And many, many people were told the whole of the province of Asia, which was that part of Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. But some became obstinate, Acts 19, and refused to believe. So he left with them. And he just kept on going. He just kept on evangelizing. They tried to stop him. He entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively. They refused to believe. So he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and, and he communicates the word there. Some of us in our churches are using a form and method of evangelism which no longer works. How many of you have had gospel services wherein non-Christians are supposed to be there and it's only Christians? How do you reach non-Christians? And we need to keep looking at all different kinds of ways of doing that. I don't know if you've ever play, played the game um, whack a when the You know, these kind of moles come up and you hit them on the head and another one comes up. Well, I think as Christians we should be like that. I think we should go out and proclaim the Word, and every time we're stopped, we find another way to do it. So they just can't keep us down. We need courage to proclaim the whole will of God. Preachers are not to add or take away. We are not to determine what should or shouldn't be uttered. We must not mangle the Scriptures. It's a lot of Bibles. Can I get a customized Bible geared specifically for the way I want to live? Stop doing that. Honestly, I've walked into Christian bookshops and I swear that I'm about to see the Christian dog walkers Bible. How is that going to be any different from any other Bible? Which verses in the Bible refer to dog walkers? Great thing to walk a dog, but is there a Christian way to do it? And does the Bible have anything to say about it? The Bible is the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. And it's useful to have different aids, but sometimes I fear that what we do is we take away from the Bible in order to make it more palatable. Erasmus says this, the Bible will give Christ to you in an intimacy so close that he would be less visible to you if he stood before your eyes. Do you know why our witness is so poor? Because we don't know the Word of God. About 25 years ago, students who came to our city, they'd come from Northern Ireland, they'd come from England and elsewhere. Christian students would ask where's the best preaching. Now do you know what they ask? They ask where's the be- best worship. And what do they mean by worship? You just mean music, really. I think I think it's a, it's a fundamental error. I think many of us do not know the word of God. Many of us are looking for experiences out with the word of God. But we need courage to proclaim the whole will of God. And that's where I don't want to be too controversial on this, but I think largely the church leadership, we've compromised on this way too much. John Owen says this, if the fountains of the waters of the sanctuary be poisoned in their first rising, they will not heal the nations into whom they come where the doctrine of truth is corrupted, the hearts of men will not be changed by it, nor their life be formed. Do you know what I keep hearing from church leaders? If only we were more like the world, then people would want to become Christians. That is nonsense. As a Christian young person, as a non-Christian young person, I was attracted by radical Christianity, not Christianity that said, look, we're just like you. Well, if you're just like me, why do I need to become a Christian? I wanted something different. And what we're doing so often is we're saying, this is how we do it. This is how we reach people. This is, no, men do but deceive themselves who suppose that the purity of religion will be preserved in confessions and canons while some make it their business to corrupt its truth On few or none make it their business to preserve its power. Do you know, Jesus did not get angry at non-Christians who live like non-Christians. Neither did Paul. But what he got angry at... We're Christians who distorted his word in his name. And we must not do that. We need courage to proclaim. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Tozer says this, you know who gives me the most trouble? Do you know who I pray for the most in my pastoral work? Just myself. Biggest stumbling block in my life is probably myself. Maybe the second biggest stumbling block for, for many of us are our brothers and sisters in the church, and yet they are the people we are called together. We need courage to pastor. That's what Paul in Acts, he, he tells the elders, you've got to take care of this flock, and he weeps with them because he says there's going to be false teachers who come in, and they're like wolves. Please understand this. Anyone who is teaching contrary to the doctrines of Christ and that is what's in Scripture, is not a Christian pastor, they are a wolf. Now, I'm not talking about Christians fighting and arguing one another about secondary issues. I'm talking about things that are at the core of the Christian gospel. It's always been the devil's position since the Garden of Eden to say, did God really say, no, God didn't really say that. If God said that, God must be really mean. So we need to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of Christ's body. Uh, If those of us who are Christians, uh, Christian elders, or whatever form your leadership calls yourself, um, you, you have to give yourself to your people. But do you pray for leaders who are like that? It's disgusting when church leadership becomes about church politics and not service. There's a courage to challenge. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. You can't say that. It's not nice. Paul goes to Peter and says, you're a hypocrite. And then he writes in one of the letters, Peter was being a hypocrite, because he was. He was. Because he was. When people say it's not loving and it's not nice to say that, it is if it's true. It's not loving and it's not nice to keep quiet about things that are wrong. Honestly, we talk about, you know, in our culture we talk about the snowflake generation and my daughter gave me a lot of trouble for using this about younger people. And I've repented and apologized so many times, I don't do it anymore because the real snowflakes are my generation. Oh, you can't say that. People get upset. Look, there are things that we are going to get upset about. The wounds of a friend are faithful. Stay there in Ephesus, says Paul to Timothy, so that you may challenge, command certain people not to teach false doctrines anymore. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Figelius and Hermogenes. Do you know what holds up evangelism in this country more than anything else? It's the church. And we need to get some courage. We need to get some leadership. And we need to let Christ be the head of the church. Compelled by the Spirit, says Paul, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. That's some prosperity gospel, isn't it? I'm going to go there and we're going to have a great revival. The Holy Spirit's told me every city I go to, there's going to be prison and hardship. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. He said that to these elders. I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And they wept, and he wept. And do you know what he's saying? Paul's saying the growth of the church here does not depend on me. Oh, it's been such a dreadful thing to watch, and I'm, I've been in ministry for 30 years, and I've fallen into this trap as well. It's not my church. St. Peter's in Dundee is not my church. It's not dependent on me. We need to remember this is Christ's church. I find it a little strange that so many evangelicals feel called to the wealthy suburbs but not to the country areas. Or to the poorer parts. How many wealthy churches are willing to do soup kitchens. But reluctant to welcome poorer people. Into their institutions. I was in a large church once. And I heard some people talking. About their area of town. Which was a wealthy area. <clears throat> and they were talking about people who'd come. From a poorer area. And what these people actually said to one another. Was they won't last. Because they're not plus. Do you know what plus is? People like us. Oh, but we need churches to be the right. So we need people, we need middle-class churches here and black churches here and white churches and, and student churches and young people. Where did you get that in the Bible? Where? That's the antithesis of the church of Jesus Christ. One of the biggest apologetics I've got Is that, that for for example, the man who was so angry when his wife became a Christian and she became a member in our church, the day she joined, he went off and joined the pagan society. That's how angry he was. And then a few months later, he meets me and we're talking, we're having a drink together and he says, you know, David, I hate everything you teach. I hate it. I hate it. But I love everything you've got because he said, my children come to your church And I'm happy for them to come because there they meet people of different races, of different ages, and of different social backgrounds. That's what we should have, but we don't have that, but you've got that. And then we in the church say, oh, no, we reach people by making everyone in the same group. That's a nonsense. Young people don't primarily need other young people. I mean, I think that's great that they do, but I'll tell you what they do need. They need older people to love them and care for them, and they need older people to teach and take them on board. Let Christ be the head of the church. And then we need courage to care. Look at this. Paul finished speaking. He knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Just let me give you a a couple of points to finish with. Um, There are many tears in this work. Ministry in the church ought always to be like this. There will always be tears. We share the joys and the sorrows of our people. We weep with those who weep. We laugh with those who laugh. I'm tired of stoical, "Ah, let's just get through it. Where's the tears? Where's the joy? And then we need to pray. And by the way, I've just worked out something here. I've been looking at something on this that I thought was the timer. And I'm going, this can't be right because it says I've still got two and a half hours to go. And I've glanced in at this and it says I'm over by a minute and 30 seconds. So I apologize for that. I had no idea. Um, So I don't have two and a half hours to go. But we need prayer. He knelt and prayed with all of them. The best thing you'll ever do is pray for your people. It is great to talk to people about Jesus, it's even better to talk to Jesus about people. Do both. And then love. They kissed him, they embraced and kissed him, a display of affection. Don't be cold. Even with the prospect of eternity together, there's no doubt that farewells on earth are difficult. Do you know what will convince people that Jesus is real? Because he says this himself. It's when they come in amongst you and they see that your love for one another is real. Not the kind of love which says, right, I want you all to stand up and give another a hug to show how much you love each other. No. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when a mother in your church gives birth and someone else decides, do you know this? We want to provide food for that family so for two weeks people in the congregation provide meals and that just becomes the normal practice in the church. I'm talking about when someone's in hospital and dying and people go and visit and support and help their family. I'm talking about when people weep when the child dies and I'm talking about when people celebrate when the child is is saved or alive. I'm talking about the real care and compassion that comes from a family and all the pain. And I think that most of us in our churches don't want it because families hurt like mad. But real Christian families is an incredible credible witness. So we need courage in our families. We need courage in the church. And the church is the family of God. And we need people just to stand up and to lead and to follow what Jesus says and to believe what the Bible says and to do so with love. The angel of the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. I know you've persevered and endured hardships for my name. But what does he say? They'd grown cold. They'd lost their first love. Please don't let that be the case for you. If we are going to witness in this society, it's not going to be through fancy techniques. It's going to be through Christians who love each other and who love the Lord, and you won't be able to stop us. That's why your best witnesses are those who've just been converted, because they haven't had time yet to be cynical and to think it doesn't work. They know it works because it just worked for them. And that's why those of us who are older Christians need to rekindle our enthusiasm and love for Jesus because we want to tell people. You can please do speak to us at the back of the the solas stall. I'll leave you with um, just one illustration that may help in this. I want people going out of church so excited that they want to invite people back. I like football but I support a team called Dundee. So our 100% record for the season has already gone after our first game uh, we lost yesterday. So I have a second team called Barcelona. And I once saw Barcelona play. I'm like the guy with the old Ford Fiesta on on the back says the sticker, my other car's a Porsche. Well, my other team is Barcelona. And I once saw Barcelona play Dundee United, and they won 4-0. And I remember the Dundee United fans being so impressed, they were standing up and applauding their own team being slaughtered and a particular Scottish form of celebration. And I, 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 was, I, I was amazed at how Barcelona played. And I got on a bus, and I'm telling you, the little old lady beside me, I don't care if she was Serbo creation doing her knitting, who knew nothing about football. I was going to tell her about that game. You see where i had been? You see what? I, this was amazing. I want people going out of church so excited. They're going, you, you've got to come and hear this. Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. You've got to come and see this. This is wonderful. This is brilliant. We need to be rekindled ourselves before the fire of the gospel will spread throughout our land. May God bless each one of you. Amen.